for me, life in tech and life in politics have been like parallel roads, and sometimes they have been interacting, sometimes not. Hi, my name is Tavi Revas. I'm an entrepreneur and former Prime Minister of Estonia, and you are listening to Innovation Civilization Podcast. Welcome to a very special episode of the Innovation Civilization Podcast, where we welcome the first politician on the pod who held the highest national office as Prime Minister of a country from the European Union. As technology seeps into our lives and institutions, we need more people who have a deep, deep understanding of both to navigate us forward. Tavi Rovas is here to give us a short tutorial on just that especially in politics and early stage tech companies is that you need to inspire with a vision or story. You need to have people following your vision. In politics, a lot is about storytelling, a lot is about showing how we can get to a better world, better living standard, better results in any way. But the same is in early stage tech companies. Sometimes you start with nothing or very little and you have a huge dream to change the world. If you don't have a proper storytelling, if you don't have a proper vision behind that it's not possible to have people following. We also talk about the mega trends and the changing landscape of technology that affects the political economy as well. Technology transforming the world ever quicker is one of the trends for sure. Think about history. There used to be ages that were named after a single tool. We have Stone Age, Bronze Age, and so forth. Then Industrial Revolution. We had things changing or disrupting in centuries. There were like long periods where industry was transforming. Everybody was saying the jobs are taken from us. I don't know if we would like to have those jobs that were before Industrial Revolution. Would we want to like shivel before the time? of excavator. I, I don't think that today's young people would actually want to do those jobs. It's quite normal that we use technology to increase our productivity. Now, during the tech age that we are living in, the progress is super fast, and this is making things a lot more difficult. Things are changing faster, which means that we need to adapt, we need to understand the change. That goes not only for youngsters, but also for legislators and startup companies. That and much more coming right up on this episode. Tavi Roivas, thank you very much for being in the Civilization Podcast. What a great pleasure to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. Brilliant. So, Tavi, thanks for being the part. You'll be the first politician or former politician, like you said, to hold the highest political office of the state to be on the podcast. I've had policymakers before. I've had tech CEOs, top VCs in Europe. You'll be the first who brings that political aspect and that political experience to technology. Quite interested in how this goes. To start off, can you tell me more about what's your origin story? Tell us more about about how you got started, where you got started, and how did you came about to hold the highest political office in Estonia, and maybe a bit on what you're doing now as well. For me, life in tech and life in politics have been like parallel roads, and sometimes they have been interacting, sometimes not. My first tech connections were back in high school, even before high school, where we communicated with friends in a system called Fidonet. That was before mm -hmm. email. A lot of those people who actually were my contacts there are tech founders or working for tech companies now. So quite interesting coincidence. I started in politics at high school, more officially in university, and started working for Minister of Justice at the age of 19, which is, I think, still probably the, one of the world records, or at least very close to the world record to work yeah. in this kind of position. That was 99. That was before, actually, the Estonian e-government even started. We had a lot of initiatives already back then with Minister Mertras. For example, we did the first, I, probably it was globally first, but at least it was first mm -hmm. in Estonia 
WAP solution to just go and look for data who has the right to sign for a company. So basically you can mm-hmm. enter business register and see who is the rightful representative of this company. That we did back in the year 2000. So that was probably like two months after the first WAP phones were out. For our younger audience, WAP is just something that looks like a combination of SMS and poor graphics on the screen of your phone, yeah. which wasn't a smartphone back then. Yeah, course. yeah. I mean, I heard of pagers before. People used to take them around quite a bit. But is this like pre-pager or is that a no, iteration that, that of was a actually pager? Yeah. That was a mobile phone. Those mobile okay. phones okay. that had like slightly bigger screens than the one row. In the, at first, actually. mobile phones had one row screen when you only had yeah. the, the number. Yeah. You yeah. had to scroll the text. But that was like almost like surfing with a mobile phone already. It was the first mm. protocol to go to internet with mobile phone. And again, 23 years ago. So that was my first interaction between politics and tech. Uh, mm-hmm. Second was actually quite soon afterwards, already in the year 2001, we started experimenting with the idea of internet voting. And mm-hmm. that was before we actually had delivered our digital identities. We had the mm-hmm. digital identity already in the pipeline. We knew mm-hmm. that we will have one. And the minister, Martresk, who was a great visionary, or still is a great visionary, he said that to his young colleagues that you should come yeah. up with the utmost public service that we can offer to our citizens we are using mm-hmm. digital channels and he answered the question himself saying that there is no higher connection between citizen and government than voting and that was the beginning mm-hmm. of internet voting the idea was coming from minister Rask from 2001 and the first internet voting happened already in 2005 and today Estonia is uh, still the only country that does it properly uh, mm-hmm. i mean safely with a safe and yeah. secure uh, identification and proper back office now we have at parliament elections more than half of the people who are voting, mm. they are using the internet voting channel. We still yeah. have the paper ballots, but that was, mm. I would say, revolutionary. Yeah. And yeah, I think where it all started for me personally, I have worked in different political offices throughout my career, but I think the most mm-hmm. significant being health minister from 2012 and then mm-hmm. prime minister from 2014. And both of those mm-hmm. jobs had a lot of interactions with e-government. Uh, mm-hmm. Health systems being one of the biggest and first that we properly digitalized anything from digital prescription to mm-hmm. to patients' health record, also mm-hmm. getting all the hospitals online, having mm-hmm. the systems working so that if you go to one hospital, mm-hmm. the other hospital can actually see your health data as well if necessary and yeah. the other thing. Yeah. And that Prime Minister's office, we pushed very strongly for this kind of international image of uh, mm-hmm. e-government. And, mm-hmm. and one of the biggest initiatives we had was mm-hmm. uh, e-residency back in 2014. And the idea of e-residency was to introduce a proper digital ID and digital signature for those people whose own governments don't offer them this this tool. And a lot of them have become big fans of doing things online and getting mm-hmm. public services online. So yeah, that's yeah. the story in, in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty pretty prolific and eclectic experience you've had across. And uh, did you say you studied politics in, in yeah. university? I studied economic science, actually, mm. and politics was basically a hobby. So we organized big seminars for students. Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. bear in mind that the year was 97, so there was yeah. much less entertainment. There was not as much, let's mm. say, internet usage. There was no Instagram. Yeah. There was no Facebook. No, yeah. uh, we were very far from that. So we actually had Fair. to No Netflix and uh, chilling. Yeah, Absolutely. 
about the No Netflix and Chilling, we had to organize physical gatherings and we started mm-hmm. inviting, I would say, most famous or most prominent politicians from mm-hmm. all different parties and mm-hmm. just offering the students these lectures where yeah. they can see which parties are taking us to which yeah. directions. That was, yeah, that was what we did in the early 90s. And then yeah, already in 99, I started working for Minister of Justice. So, yeah. so that was yeah. quite quick. But that was different times then. We, yeah. we lived in a very changing society. Estonia came from this terrible Soviet occupation, which ruined our economy, which ruined our liberty. And we started very rapidly. That was one of the keys yeah. to our success. One of the most interesting things I found about that story is that I've seen a lot of countries around the world. I've lived on like four different continents. You know, I've seen some places where states encourage youth politics. There's a very active political culture within the youth, within the universities, and like you said, providing platforms for that democratic engagement of different ideas. Then I've seen other countries where that has actually led to a lot of downsides. The youth getting distracted from studies, the youth becoming involved in like taking the law into their own hands because politically you're quite powerful, so you know know powerful people and you can pull some strings. You mostly see that in the global south. So how did you guys manage this quite beautiful environment where everyone's going towards like a shared North Star, keeping a healthy environment of dialogue while also encouraging the youth to study tech, study the sciences, as well as being politically quite involved constructively, right? So how did you guys manage that kind of nice, harmonious environment? I'm quite curious. One of the drives we had in the Mm. early 90s was to get as far as possible from this very restricted, very undemocratic society that Soviet Union had. And that led to Estonia being one of the freest economies in the world, one of the freest in press freedom, freedom of speech, many of the rankings. Estonians, by the way, are quite obsessed about rankings. We want to compare ourselves (laughs) against others. Yeah. We want to see how we measure and we see that this is actually a helper for us to achieve the highest goals. I think Estonians, and this is a very good thing, Estonians are still very hungry for success and we see that our today's level of development is not our highest potential. We can definitely push harder and we can definitely reach higher levels of income or living standards. Now, going back to the 90s, the society developing, one of the keys was actually rather young people getting the chance to not only hold public offices, but also hold very important offices in the corporate world. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. unusual to have leaders of the banks in their late 20s or even early 30s. So Mm -hmm. also in the politics. Mm -hmm. We didn't really have youth politics. We had young people participating in the actual thing. So so once you were of age to actually run for an office, you might have Mm -hmm. run for the office. And and not Mm -hmm. everybody, of course, or most of the young people were not elected Mm -hmm. yet, but many of those who were running first in the 90s or early years of this century have been elected later. So even today, a lot of those government ministers or parliament members, they were already in politics in the Mm -hmm. 90s during the time Mm -hmm. of transition. That's really interesting. In terms of your life and balancing between a tech entrepreneur, I'm sure we'll get into what you do right now versus being a politician. So what would you say are like the similarities and the differences of running a political organization versus running a technology or private organization. And I say this because in the world, like I know back in the day when Donald Trump was campaigning, he was like, oh, I'm going to run this 
country like a company. I guess what he wanted to mean was that it's going to be much more efficient. It's going to hit all the KPIs, you know, it's going to do everything that you need to do, right? But companies are run very differently in terms of there's less democratic engagement versus political organizations. From your life running both sets of organizations, what would you say are like the similarities as a person doing both that? Or what are the differences if you kind of see in between the two? Well, I think you are very much right to say that these are different worlds, mostly. And there have mm. been many entrepreneurs who have tried to go for politics and they have failed. I mean, it's I think it's fair to say. There have mm. been, of course, successful examples as well. But it's not like, you know, I take the experience from my business and apply it 100% and then I will yeah. be super successful in politics. No, mm. that's not how it works. Um, okay. The similarities, I think, especially in politics and early stage tech companies, is that you need to inspire with a vision or, or story. You need to have people following your vision. In politics, a lot is about storytelling, a lot is about mm -hmm. showing how we can get to a better world, better living standard, right. better results in any way. And the same is in, in early stage tech companies. Sometimes you start with nothing or very little and you have a huge dream to change the world. And yeah. if you don't have a proper storytelling, if you don't have a proper vision behind that, it's not possible to have people following. People will go to bigger companies where it's more established where cushier jobs actually high, yeah yeah high salaries and, and so yeah forth. so so you need to you need to motivate people with like who really want to change the world and in politics and startup world i think this is definitely a common thing and and this like mm -hmm. if you want a steady job if you want a like, comfortable job don't go to politics don't go to startup you should try mm -hmm. to get some like office job from from nine to five yeah. i mean you can have a steady job in politics but then you're not a good politician good politicians mm -hmm. work extremely hard to to, to achieve success mm. and to actually deliver what they have promised. So I think also this is similarity that uh, that you don't you don't follow the clock politics if you really want to do it well and in startups definitely you don't follow the clock. It doesn't matter mm. if it's like five o'clock in the evening or if it's Sunday yeah. or if you need to have some work done you need to do, have this work done. Yeah. In our company we have uh, clients in Japan, US, in many time zones. So, so yeah. if somebody calls me eight o'clock in the evening I need to be there and if they schedule something seven o'clock in the morning that's also perfectly normal so mm. so yeah that's how it goes. In politics, I think it's a little bit the same. That makes sense, really. And just for the audience, so you're currently leading a startup called Avetech. Is that what it is? And what do you guys do? Correct. We are developing autonomous last line shuttles. They will take you autonomously without a driver from the bus stop to your doorstep mm -hmm. and reduce the need to use personal cars. Or mm -hmm. in some use cases, they are part of the public transport. For example, in mm -hmm. Finland, in Tampere, a few of our shuttles are part of public transport network. The first mm -hmm. ones are starting in Japan, in mm -hmm. small cities, also offering public transport for people. And, mm -hmm. and the bet we have made is that if there are rather simple driving challenges where technology can be better than human beings, mm -hmm. technology never gets tired or technology can have more sensors than human being, then there is possibility to take over and mm -hmm. utilize the fact that we don't have enough uh, people working as or to work as bus drivers. Big picture, of course, is that we have simply too many cars in this world. Currently, we have roughly mm -hmm. 1.5 billion, but if all the world would take on the consumption habits of US and Europe, we would need 4.5 
billion more vehicles in the world. Can you imagine? Incredible. We need to yeah. quadruple at least the number of vehicles globally. And this mm. is simply not possible. Even yeah. with electric cars, I'm a big fan of, of electric cars. I have driven yeah. only electric myself for the last three years or so. I like it. But even with electric cars, we have a lot of bottlenecks in the grid, mm. in the production, yeah. also parking. So yeah, our big belief is that we need to boost public transport. And the yeah. biggest problem of public transport is the fact that it doesn't come to your doorstep it goes to the bus mm. station or mm. train station and uh, the mm. last last bit is is what we are offering that's real interesting and are you guys in seed or series a or yeah you've got a few clients well, yeah actually, this is the interesting part we have had the luxury to have a founder who has given us the resources to bootstrap our way to the top we are always keeping guys open for external investments but we have mm. definitely not done any investment rounds and we are not actively mm. seeking investors because we see that it is possible to actually achieve a lot before we get to the first investment rounds. And we are very proud of the fact that vehicles that are designed and made in Estonia mm. have already been sold to countries like Japan, who is the biggest right. car exporter in the world. So mm. they are buying vehicles from us, which means Estonia. that there needs, needs to be something there. <laughs> yeah. So you've got like active, live, these shuttles, they call it in Japan, basically being used right now as we speak. Correct. We have the, the just launched a new model Mika and the first vehicles are all sent to Japan so mm-hmm. the first ones already being delivered that mm-hmm. more and more going as we speak mm-hmm. uh, we have a fleet operating also in different mm-hmm. cities in Europe mm-hmm. all together we have been operating in 16 countries around the world mainly mm-hmm. Europe Middle East and Japan and mm-hmm. together with our partners we are also getting ready to jump across the Atlantic. Going to US is super interesting, but we need to be super ready for that because probably mm-hmm. there's only one chance and we have to get it right. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. And sorry for the diversion, I really want to get the audience in terms of what you're doing right now and how cool it is that you speak the language of politics, but also the language of entrepreneurship and tech, which is like quite important. But just coming back, circling back to what we were talking about in terms of what are the differences, similarities between political office and private companies and tech entrepreneurship. You talked about video vision being quite similar. So as a politician, you just set a great vision, same as a tech founder, you've got nothing starting to scratch. So you've got to set a great vision. We talked about not looking at the clock, right? It's almost like it doesn't matter what you're trying to do. You're trying to be disruptive. You're trying to go after the incumbents. You can't look at the clock in terms of nine to five, you work whatever needs done. These are the similarities. Are there anything else quite similar between political office and running a tech entrepreneurship? If not, let's talk about some of the key differences that you would say. Yeah, well, I think they are different worlds. If you are yeah. working as a government minister, that you have a team of people preparing things for you. You have yeah, uh, the best advisors available. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my colleagues, he used to be mm-hmm. a defense minister in, in my first government. He made a good joke after not no longer being a minister. He said, how do you know you're no longer a minister? You go to your car, you mm-hmm. sit in the back seat mm-hmm. and nothing happens. And that's <laughs> okay. exactly one of the uh, right. differences. When you are uh, in startup world, you need to do everything yourself. It's a good thing that there are differences because for me, it was a very conscious decision to go to startup world after retiring from politics because I was no longer prime minister or I exited as prime minister at the age of 37. Yeah, and quite young. if you're 37, yeah. you have been prime minister in two consecutive governments. The question yeah. is, okay, whether I stay along for 30 more years in 
in the parliament and start telling yeah. everyone else how the things were better mm. when I was in office or in the good old times, or <laughs> I don't go for this grumpy old guy stuff and I do something that actually shines my lights, shines my eyes and gives me personal opportunities to grow as a person. So definitely mm. startup world is a lot different. I, I cannot compare which is easier, which is more difficult. I can, if mm -hmm. you do things properly, you can mm -hmm. find really tough challenges in any job, I think. Definitely in, in startup world, definitely in politics. These are definitely things that it's more not about the world, but it's more about you. If you like to have easy life, then I would say yeah. neither of these worlds is for you. Or if yeah. you want to really push hard and grow as a person, then you can achieve great things in both. Yeah, that's quite incredible. What advice would you have for people or students studying today at universities or high schools? I know that in a way that tech is changing so much and there's things about AI taking our jobs. And there's also quite a need for people to study political economy, right? Study the basic tenets, study the classics, your Aristotles, your Plato's, your Jefferson's, and really understand the crux of how at least the political world works and then how that interfaces with the technology that's there. What advice would you have for people who are studying right now? What should they study more in this age of tech? How can we get more people who are interested in the development of societies into politics and who actually know and understand about tech and not just reading briefings and just parroting out those briefings? Well, the most important thing is to understand the megatrends that are just surrounding us. Technology transforming the world ever quicker is one of the trends for sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you think about history, there used to be ages that were named after a single tool. We have Stone Age, Bronze Age, and so forth. Then Industrial Revolution, we had things changing or disrupting in centuries. There were like long mm. periods where industry was transforming. Again, everybody was saying the jobs are taken from us. If we would like to have those jobs that were before Industrial Revolution, would we want to like shivel before the time of excavator? I, I don't think that today's young people would actually want to do those jobs. It's mm. quite normal that uh, we use technology to increase our productivity. Now, during the tech age that we are living in, the progress is super fast. And this is making things a lot more difficult. Things are changing faster, which means that we need to adapt. We need to understand the change. That goes not only for youngsters, but also for legislators and startup companies. If you understand where the world is going, you have much higher probability to catch the wave. The politicians should really look into the trends and try to enable those trends to happen in their countries so that mm. the country can benefit from that. Tech entrepreneurs are running ahead of the curve. They need to much, yeah. understand mm. what will happen, not today, but what will happen tomorrow or the day after mm. tomorrow and make it happen sooner than the competitors. There is a lot of countries who try to, like, let's say, avoid the change or try to postpone it somehow. Let's take mm. the simple examples of platform economy, for example. Not like particularly high-tech stuff, but it's like a change yeah. in, in business model. Uh, yeah. So taking companies like Uber, Bolt, Karim, in some countries, they are enabled and they have transformed the taxi service, they have transformed the courier mm. service, they have transformed a lot of things. Essentially, they have given more competition, which in market economy is definitely a good thing. Good in thing, some yeah. countries, they prefer to have like standardized taxi drivers that all need to look alike and have similar cars. Essentially, they end up either with very expensive service or a very mm. bad quality service. There is like not many good examples of very regulated and very good service. Again, this mm. is something that we learned firsthand from the Soviet occupation that trying to regulate the business very strictly is not ending well. You should give businesses room to compete, to innovate. Business 
models to innovate, technology to innovate. If you, as a legislator, give this room for your country's companies, mm -hmm. the sky is the limit. What I see, and that's probably a little bit also wishful thinking because I come from a very small country, but I see that in the competition of countries in the near future, probably already today, also there is a chance for small countries to be really fast and really mm -hmm. like outperform the big ones. I think yeah. this is not only for the countries, but now we're getting back to the tech entrepreneurs. This is mm -hmm. a chance. Also, our age gives the chance to scale very quickly. Let's go yeah. back 100 years to the industrial revolution. Scaling factory quickly was not an easy task. And there were mm -hmm. just very few capitalists who, mm -hmm. who were in the opportunity of doing so. Today, starting a company and making it global, at least in theory, is possible for anyone. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. I don't know what will happen in 50 or 100 years, but I know for sure that still we have a, at least few years to come where this kind of very rapid scaling of business is possible if your idea is good, if your execution is good, yeah, anyone can do it. And the internet, of course, is one of the greatest equalizers of opportunities in our world. It doesn't really matter where we are born geographically. Okay, it still matters, mm. let's face it, but it matters less. And why we can less, communicate yeah. via internet, mm. uh, it gives the opportunity for any one of us, wherever we are living, mm. to actually do great things and to communicate yeah. with the most important, the most relevant people. Yeah, yeah. And that's a very important thing. So I live in London. I walk through a lot of these old guilds and societies and clubs like the Royal Nursing Society, the Royal XYZ Society, Engineering Society. And I'm sure those societies had utility during the Industrial Revolution, as well as quite after the Victorian age and stuff like that. But being physically present was super important back then. And right now on Twitter spaces, on LinkedIn and other places like e-webinars and stuff like that, I see there's just so much more great content that you just can't get in one physical location, right? Because you might be based in Estonia, I might be based in somewhere else, basically someone else might be based in Dubai. Just getting together on a virtual room is so much more easier. And then Vision Pro is coming as well with Apple next year. So that's going to be another level. You're right in terms of the fact that the internet is like a great democratizing technology, basically it's like an equalizer. It doesn't matter where you are specifically, like it does matter, but less and less as we go by. A lot of points that you laid out, I'm going to start unpick that one by one. Let's talk about artificial intelligence a little bit. Europe just released its European AI Act within a couple of months. There's like ChatGPT and BARD and everyone else going around there. Just one of the data points to steelman your argument how technology is changing much faster than say like hundreds of years ago is that it took Google a year or two to reach 100 million users and it took like ChatGPT literally two months to reach 100 million users. The pace of change from zero to 100 is just like so fast, right? What do you think should the response of states be and politicians be in terms of artificial intelligence? Do you see it as a technology which is going to eviscerate jobs and create like this AGI? It's going to control the world and it's going to be much harmful. That's why we need to bottleneck it and you know, put guardrails on it at the onset. Or do you see this as a more technology to increase productivity and the yada yada? Where do you stand in terms of that debate of what is AI and how AI is going to change the world and how should politicians react to it? I don't think we can put the genie back to the bottle. It's mm. out It's out there. It is out here. We are using it daily. Some of it we know use consciously. Some of it we mm -hmm. use getting our car route 
tracked exactly to the right location, looking at the traffic jams and so forth. So there is like a mm. lot of surfing that we do. We don't think that we are using AI, but the AI is being used in the background and so mm -hmm. forth. So it's there, it's happening. It will change some of the jobs, of course, but that's going to continue to happen whatever technologies are out there also in the mm. future. We cannot hang on to all the same jobs forever. And that's mm. one of the points when you were asking about the advice for youngsters. I don't think that it's possible to hang on for like legacy jobs, at mm -hmm. least in all sectors, too long. You need to look where the jobs might be becoming obsolete and then trying to find another sector to work for. There will be plenty of jobs in the future. There will be plenty of opportunities for entrepreneurship in the future. What, what will change probably is actually how we define a job. We are still living in the regulatory environment. We're still living in the industrial age where the job starts at nine, eight and stops mm -hmm. at five. And you work uh, mm -hmm. five days a week and this is mm -hmm. standard. But why should it be a standard? You can mm -hmm. have different methods. You can have several jobs, you can like combine them somehow. I think this is one of the big changes that will happen to all of us, that mm. the rhythm of our working is changing. Second thing, of course, what AI and communication and internet is enabling is working from distance. As we discussed, the fact yeah. that it doesn't really matter so much anymore where you are living, that actually might bring people to beautiful countryside. We don't all need mm -hmm. to move to the capitals. We don't all need yeah. to fight for the super expensive London square Real meters that, uh, yeah. that very well firsthand. Yeah. We, we yeah. can live in countryside. Technology is our only mm. chance to actually revert the change mm. of urbanization. I don't mm -hmm. say that urbanization is bad. I have lived in the capital of Estonia all my life, but I think that technology is the only chance we have to revert this urbanization. Yeah. Let me make the argument for the regulators. What they say is that, listen, we understand that technology has ever been changing and the jobs we have now are different from the jobs we had before, pre-industrial revolution, post-industrial revolution. But the nature of this technology, AI, is quite different in a way that it replaces human judgment and human thinking in a lot of ways. So previously, yes, you had, as an artist, you didn't have any tools, you just wrote art from scratch, right? After that, you had more better tools to do the same thing, to augment that, for instance, Adobe After Effects and Adobe Photoshop and all these tools in order to make your renderings better, your art better. But you're still doing the thinking. What AI does is replace the judgment and replace the thinking. What do you make of that argument that this is a fundamentally different technology and henceforth we need to think more closely about the consequences on jobs than any other technology before? Yeah, it's correct. We can discuss all we want about thinking mm -hmm. of the consequences, but mm -hmm. we cannot, you and I, and we can even take Joe Biden uh, to join us. We can get all the world leaders together, but there are mm -hmm. some things that you cannot stop the te technology developing is one of mm. those things uh, you cannot deregulate the way from progress it will be happening if some countries say that oh this is bad we should try to put it under the table or hide it under the carpet then there will be some other countries in the world that will reap the benefits will yeah. actually use it we need to bear in mind that there is a global competition and that there will always be some places yeah. in the world where the technology keeps developing of course it's different of course there are different mm. elements and we once more i want to reiterate that we need to be mm. ready for even more different the changes. I mean, AI, I would say, still is rather limited, but it won't perhaps mm. always stay in this limitation. So, mm. so it's still, I think, a lot of potential of AI that we haven't seen. And the, mm. the transformation that will come from that, of course, at the same time, it's a little bit terrifying. But, uh, mm -hmm. but I mean, change in essence is terrifying for many people. If you think about 
tomorrow and you don't really know what is happened, there's like two ways. Either you are terrified or you are curious. Yeah. I think we should be more curious. Mm. That doesn't say that I'm like super optimistic and don't understand the threats. Of course, there are threats. I really don't think that it's possible to fully deregulate away from those yeah. changes or transformations. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. On that specific point, just double clicking on that. So you said you got to be open to change, right? And things are going to be fundamentally different and stability is something you can't always maintain. It's going to be peaks and troughs. One of the roles of government, and I've seen in the deep interiors of some of the biggest ministries in the world, the main core objective function is how to keep things stable. Because as a government, you're trying to keep society stable. You're trying to keep businesses and economies stable. How in Estonia, or how would a government self-disrupt itself, do you think? A lot of companies like Amazon or others, they would self-disrupt their businesses in order to pivot, in order to do this, do that. How do you think governments can self-disrupt themselves in a way that while also maintaining stability for folks in a lot of ways. How do you think about that trade-off? How do you think about that idea? Yeah. Uh, Estonia had a different starting position. After Soviet occupation, we had a lot to win and not much to lose because mm -hmm. everything was taken from us anyways during the occupation. All the mm -hmm. companies, all the material assets we had as citizens. Some countries, let's say Luxembourg, Germany, their people think differently because they have a lot to lose. They have generations of generating wealth, they are thinking how to protect it. That's where the stability comes to action. I think that's probably normal. Estonia is more and more getting to this position also where mm -hmm. we have a lot to lose. In my personal opinion, luckily, we are still quite hungry for success and we are still right. like hungry for positive disruption, positive change, not mm -hmm. satisfied with status quo. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be satisfied with status quo, but, but yeah. if you are satisfied with status quo, then you don't grow. And yeah, yeah. that's pretty and much then, easy. And how do you engender that mentality within the population of a nation state? Is that byproduct because of post-Soviet reasons? Do you think that there's something you guys are doing, there's some cultural aspect, some social aspect that governments can instill within the population for that hunger? It's a combination. I think wanting to get as far as possible from Soviet Union is the context and mm. gives some sort of logic behind it. Having Finland as a very close neighbor in many ways and one of the most successful countries in Europe is another aspect. We know that we are very similar to Finns and we know that there is no logical reason why we should have any lower living standard than our, let's say, brothers in the mm. North. Uh, mm. Thirdly, I would say seeing firsthand success happening in Estonia is a huge motivator. Skype, mm. the, the first unicorn, before we actually used the word unicorn in this context, Skype had a huge influence and still has. People looked at this tremendous success selling a company made in Estonia for eight and a half billion US dollars to Microsoft. Many people working there, they said, okay, I would now start my own company and I would replicate this success or I would do something similar. Of course, not all of them because became unicorns, but some of them have become. For example, why is a British company founded by two Estonians? One of them mm. is an ex-Skyper and there are many, mm. many ex-Skype people working for WISE still. Mm. That's the kind of like huge, I'd say, belief that the success can actually happen also in Estonia. It doesn't need to be London City or it doesn't need mm. to be Wall Street where big things happen or Silicon Valley in the startup world. Yeah. I think this change of mentality has changed mm. a lot. I remember from my political days that mm -hmm. it used to be so 
so that all the Estonian startups who wanted to get any funding should have registered themselves in, in Delaware or something. Mm, yeah. Huge hassle. Like today, yeah. most investors, they don't even ask. They know, okay, Estonia, oh. you have 10 unicorns. We are very happy to invest in Estonian legislation. They know that the Estonian legislation is probably, uh, right. in some cases, better or quicker than many international regulations. There's a fun thing about similarities and differences mm. in, in politics and uh, startup world. When I was prime minister, I had a round table of startup entrepreneurs and no mm. one was there because of their some sort of title. We just handpicked some of the most opinionated startup leaders very subjectively. Just invited 15 people or so and then asked them, okay, what are the biggest bottlenecks in the startup ecosystem? Mm. One of the topics that came out was we needed to change taxation of uh, stock options. Very mm. common, very logical topic for startups. And mm. from the idea being mentioned in the startup roundtable in the government office to the execution, it took us four months and I was very proud. Mm. I was like, come on, we did like a proper regulation, <laughs> yeah. went to the parliament four months. And then one guy mm. sitting on my right hand, actually, he was he was CEO of Pipe Drive, another unicorn now, not the unicorn okay. back then. He said, yeah. yeah, could you be any slower? And I was <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> okay, yeah. thanks a lot. I understand that. Of course, we laughed at the situation together, but four months can be entirety or like a long time yeah. in startup world. Whereas in politics, you feel that you are super fast and doing things very rapidly. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, basically, that I guess politics, politicians and governments struggle with that they're, we're still trying to regulate or think about web two sort of applications like okay effects of instagram effects of tiktok and stuff like that on the world while there's so much of web three stuff is already coming about already right there's always that gap that's there but that's interesting and just like a data point for our listeners so i was just reading that estonia has the most number of unicorn businesses per capita of any other country country in Europe. That's quite that's quite impressive for I mean it's a small country but still that's still quite impressive. But also yeah. this is not mm. only unicorns, it's also like the wider startup yeah. ecosystem. So if you mm -hmm. look like funding per capita, if you look at startups per capita, so mm. we rank very, very high in all those metrics and I'm very nice. proud of that. Nice. I know you guys look at the metrics all the time, like you said. So yeah. Correct. It's good stuff. We talked a lot about Estonia being a small country and how technology is an enable enabler for a small country versus is an incumbent and, and, and stuff like that. One of the trends that a lot of the small countries are doing is thinking through de-dollarization, you know? So this is where geopolitics slightly meets development of small countries. I know the BRICS countries, they're thinking about de-dollarization. You've got African leaders, many African leaders who've come out and have said that it's actually going to be a great thing to de-dollarize. I know the OPEC countries in the Middle East are seriously thinking thinking about de-dollarization as well, which is moving away from using the US dollar as the world's reserve currency or the trading currency of exchange, right? What do you think about the effects of de-dollarization? Do you think it's a net good thing for the world? bad thing for the world. Just give me your two cents on this, basically. Well, first of all, from Estonian perspective, this is not a topic because we have mm -hmm. changed our currency from our own Estonian kron to Euro, and we are very happy with that. It's a stable currency. Okay. It gives us opportunities mm -hmm. to trade more than having our own currency. We don't have much dollarization in Estonia, to be honest, but right. and, and in Europe, for that matter. But having a dollar as like a reserve currency and having US playing a central role, well, I think there is also possible 
positive things in it. I would say that it's better to have a strong US on the side of the, let's say, good guys than mm-hmm. trying to like have many centers of gravity in this world. And mm-hmm. and I don't want to go too deep to, to geopolitics, but I think that having a very strong democratic country in a strong mm-hmm. position and, of course, a strong Europe as an alliance or team of strong democratic countries, I think it's important. And fundamentally, mm-hmm. it's important that democratic regimes are strong and playing key role in uh, mm-hmm. not only geopolitics, but also the world economy. I mean, dollar yeah. has been super important for quite some time, and mm-hmm. I don't think it will change easily. So yeah, mm-hmm. I don't, and that once more yeah. from very narrowly Estonian perspective, it's not the big yeah. topic, but of course yeah, I understand not, the implications not, in the global, yeah. global sense. That makes sense, really. And interestingly enough, I'm keen to get your perspective on this. There's a lot of American thinkers currently coming out. Ray Dalio is one of them, who's a big investor and tech investor before he wrote a book about the American decline and the fading US presence in the world in terms of what you said in the coalition of democratic countries and the post sort of Cold War, it is kind of fading. And Ray Dalio and others are talking about how America is showing all signs of like a civilization in decline. And also the fact that we're going towards a more multipolar world where China is getting involved through the Belt and Road, throughout Africa, obviously throughout Middle East. What's your take on the whole situation, thinking about the world? Do you think that actually the U.S. is on the decline? What effects do you think would that have on the smaller countries around the world and, and tech in general? Yeah, any thoughts? Well, I think we should probably reserve another like hour or two mm, yeah. for uh, this topic because it's, Fair, uh, yeah. there's no, if you try to give uh, simple answers to complicated problems, uh, you become populist and this I don't want to become. I know actually, mm-hmm. Ridalia, and I have spoken with him a few years ago a couple of mm-hmm. times of course I see those trends happening some of them are quite mm-hmm. objective mm-hmm. but I don't know if it's wishful thinking but I try to be less pessimistic about this topic I okay. don't think that weaker US would be good mm-hmm. as a coincidence the no confidence vote against me and the mm-hmm. US uh, citizens electing Trump for president in 2016 were happening on the same day. So I'm just sometimes joking that that day changed a lot and not necessarily for better. I think having Trump as a president in global sphere, of course, it was a shock for many and it changed the perception that the US mm-hmm. is always stable and predictable. Having US even slightly less predictable is a huge thing and not in a good way, I think, for Europe. So yeah, that was a shock without saying and U.S. politics becoming more turbulent is making things also more difficult. But I don't think we will see, let's say, in very close years, we will see that fundamentally the role of U.S. will, will change. At least I hope so. I hope that the role of Europe grows. Again, this is a little bit yeah. wishful thinking as well. But yeah, I mean, there can be for some wishful thinking at least, right? <laughs> yeah, let's think, let's think positive. Said, Otherwise, a... we get too much terrified. That's correct indeed. One of the related technologies and global questions from the technologies about dollar and de-dollar is basically cryptocurrencies. Different states are developing their own version of it, which is not decentralized, it's centralized currencies, right? So, and the SEC, which is the regulator in the US, just went really hard onto crypto, bringing charges against Binance and other crypto exchanges, including Coinbase as well. What's your perspective on crypto and cryptocurrencies? Do you think it's a good thing or do you think it's a harmful thing for humanity at large? How should governments think about crypto? 
Well, again, saying something being good or bad uh, is yeah. oversimplification. Blockchain yeah. as a technology and crypto definitely giving us more options for using different business models. It gives us a tool. Like, mm. I mean, organization in essence is a good thing. If you can do like a proper digital tokenization of, let's say, some mm -hmm. London real estate, mm -hmm. not, uh, do it. I mean, whereas some of the cryptocurrencies have been making sense, there has been like a lot of trust in it. Of course, mm -hmm. the, the exchange rate with the dollar or euro it's meant to change all the time that's the point i mean if it were fake yeah. to or like stable coin or something that would be a totally different thing whereas most regulators are getting terrified because many essentially early stage startups did icos back in the 16 17 in essence startup stock cannot be stable this is not possible mm. or it doesn't make sense and yeah. in essence it's super risky regulators and creator masses they didn't really distinguish what is bitcoin or ethereum or these big players or yeah. what is another ico at some point anyone with white paper could come up with ico and and raise a lot of money mm. most of them and this happens mm. by the way most of the startups in the rest of the world as well yeah. not only in the crypto space they yeah. go south they don't yeah 90 percent of startups and, fail right exactly so that's the and, data and also yeah, yeah. And, and we shouldn't blame the technology. I'm not a like, huge crypto optimist or anything, but I see mm -hmm. that the technology gives us opportunities. And I see that the reason why there is a lot of booms and busts is, is because the asset class where crypto is used mostly, ICOs, is early stage, very risky investments. These have to be very much going up and down. There is, there is no way about it. And of course, for a startup, to have this uh, real-time indicator of your stock mm -hmm. performance, why it's being traded essentially are, this is, yeah. I think, killing the startups in many times because you have like uh, dual motivators. One is mm -hmm. to actually have a good business and actually make it and succeed and then change the world. The other one mm -hmm. is just to say that, see if your stock price or token price is, mm -hmm. is up or down. So these things don't always play together. And if you start thinking about your token price or stock price, you might not actually perform form in real life because sometimes yeah. startups need to develop the technology slowly mm. uh, slowly but quietly for like a year or two and then Before, come up with big band yeah. and say that okay well, now we have done something really remarkable if mm. you try to do like good news every week mm. it yeah. could not work out yeah yeah it's a, it's a hard one i mean there's a lot of back and forth between government and startup we're all specifically in regards to digital money digital money is something the fiat is the government in a lot of ways right yeah, that's how it controls mm -hmm. and if you're trying to circumvent that through any other medium of exchange and stuff like that there's going to be some roughening up between the two and I guess this is what we're seeing right now and it's eventually going to reach a steady state but it's to be seen. I wanted to ask you about one of the technologies which I think is having an effect on democracies. For the last couple of years that I've been around the UK, especially in universities, I see a lot of panels being discussed on effects of technology and digitization on democracy, effects of internet on democracy. Why is democracy failing? Populism, you talk about, I guess, the cleanest background I can give is that before, throughout the 20th century, you would have state media, one or two channels. The idea was that if you educate people, they make good decisions, smart decisions coming together as a consensus. That's going to be net, net beneficial. Fast forward to today, what's happening 
happening with social media and digitization is that there's so much more opinions and everyone has an opinion and you can disrupt, you can start something, start a movement. It's also easier for non-state actors, we all heard about the Russian intervention in US elections, to propel certain propaganda. It's easier to shake fake news. And with AI now, it's like deep fakes and stuff like that, all sorts of stuff that's there. There's a genuine concern within the governments, within academia, around the West, that technology is being a destabilizer for democracy. And it's we've seen some of that play out. What's your opinion on this specific topic that like literally Zuckerberg and Twitter can literally determine the outcome of elections? Yeah, where do you stand here on this topic? Social media has changed how policy works, that's for sure, yeah. or how politics works, but not only negatively. I want to also stress the positive aspects. It gives the politicians a much closer relationship with the voters, with the electorate. Mm-hmm. You can like go to extremes, start chatting with each and every person in Facebook, and that probably doesn't turn out well at the end because mm-hmm. there will be always like people who will try to block you or engage you to this endless discussions. But mm-hmm. in principle, giving like reporting what you do, discussing with voters, I think social media has been a, a good tool as well. Now, mm-hmm. I also agree that social media has been a great enabler for populism. That's for sure, because mm-hmm. it's so easy to bring out those like alternative truths. Yeah. Say that whatever, like think with your own head and then throw out some like ridiculous conspiracy that doesn't make any sense. But because of social media and also algorithms, of course, you can very quickly yeah. spread the idea that was not possible before with the media having editors and proper system in this sense. I, I wouldn't go so far to blame social media for the trends that are uh, happening in politics. We have this kind of mm-hmm. uh, far right, I wouldn't even call them right, I would say far populist mm-hmm. parties emerging everywhere uh, in democratic countries, including Estonia, unfortunately. But that's probably more like, uh, I'd say, this is something just like a sign of for how long it lasts, I'm not sure, but social media is a big enabler for that, but probably not the main reason. There are like some sort of tensions in the society that social media just lets loose. Usually many of those people who support those far populist parties, they are eager to believe in the most ridiculous conspiracy theories, and, yeah. and sometimes they are like, very angry for some reason. Yeah, but what's the antidote to that? How do we stop that? How do you guys deal with that in Estonia? What's if, the mechanism? If only, yeah. if only yeah. I knew. I think the best antidote for populism Populism is successful governance. You need to mm. succeed. You need to show that you are performing. If you are performing, then it is difficult to build an alternative that is playing on a very simple, but sometimes mm. very stupid truth or stupid arguments. So yeah, populism mm. has bigger chances if the policy or like the normal policy, so to say, is failing, mm. then there is more room for populism. That's really interesting. And just related to digital media, I know that a lot of Estonian government is online. Right. I believe there's like a major cyber attack in 2007 as well in Estonia. How do you think this event shaped Estonia's approach to cybersecurity? And yeah, what sort of measures in managing a country's digital infrastructure and making it resilient did you guys do basically on the back of that? Well, we need to understand that the more digital we become, not only as countries, but also as individuals, the more we need to think of cybersecurity. And it needs to be Mm -hmm. not 
like a thing in itself, but it needs to be like a basic hygiene. My iPhone has a six-digit PIN. I think mm-hmm. it's quite likely more difficult to guess my PIN than actually to falsify my paper signature, you know, mm-hmm. writing with a pen. You have not seen my signature, but if you Google, you mm-hmm. can probably find how it looks like and you yeah. can find ways to actually write something exactly the same. Whereas guessing my iPhone PIN is relatively difficult. The same is with plastic cards. If you lose it in the shop, somebody can just do some swiping until you can close the card. Whereas again, if you use like a proper digital tool with mm-hmm. some sort of pin code or face ID or whatever it is, it's actually safer. Cybersecurity is something that we need to treat as a basic hygiene. And mm-hmm. uh, Estonia, of course, has had this, I don't know if it's a luxury or luck, but in many ways it was luck that we were attacked as early as 2007. That actually made us so much stronger. That made us think about cybersecurity very seriously back mm-hmm. in the time when it wasn't like basic hygiene for many and, yeah. and we became very strong and very professional in it. Yeah. Today, there's no other option than take cybersecurity extremely seriously. Yeah, that's really important. All right, with that, we'll move on to the last part of the interview, which is a quick fire round where I ask you a question and you give me boom, 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 your quick answer. Yeah, so you ready? Sure. Yeah, awesome. So who's the one leader that you really look up to and why? The founder of Avotech. He has ah. managed to come from corporate world and, and create a company that has not yet become very successful, but has already the potential to change the world. So that's a huge transformation. I admire that a lot. I'm looking forward to what you guys eventually end up doing. I think it's a very important problem that you're solving. All right. Next one is what are the top three books you would recommend to anyone to read if they're interested in technology and politics and everything in between? One definitely very good book about the economy is Psychology of Money. I definitely recommend reading that. Then about politics, I would say any biography about this person that you actually admire or think is a great politician. And something that combines politics and tech world is also a very simple book, but a lot of inspiration. Bill Gates, How to Avoid the Climate Disaster. If you haven't already read it, because most of the world probably has, this is really something that I would recommend because there's a lot of understanding of megatrends actually comes from that book. That's quite interesting. What's one thing or one lesson that you realized recently that you felt like, oh, only if I knew this earlier, it would have been so much better. Was there anything like that? I realize these things every single day. Uh, There is (laughs) a saying in Estonia that if I were half as smart as my wife after something has happened, uh, I would be ruling the world. And and that's actually the truth. So just for the young people out there, learn Mm. from others, learn from other people's successes, learn from other Mm. people's mistakes. I have had the luxury of a lot of luck and success in the life and Mm -hmm. learning from others every single day there is something that i wish i had actually known that when i was 20 or 18 or 25 yeah yeah yeah. that's very important especially have a self-learner always learner mentality right specifically in a time where tech is changing so much just ravaging through everything changes within weeks like you said four months in government is like forever so yeah that makes sense okay last one what is one life principle that you live by There are several, but one thing that has served me well is uh, never assume anything. Make sure how the facts are, make sure what the situation is, 
don't assume it is the way you assume it to be because mm. assumptions have been like wrong assumptions have been leading to very wrong results I mean, something is not so so do you check your assumptions with data early on what's the mechanism yeah, it's not only in data it's, it's also like yeah. facts situation it can be also in human relations it can be mm. it can be in, in just asking what the situation mm. is talking mm. making sure what the facts are it's, it's super helpful yeah that's, yeah. that's really something that helps a lot not assuming because things could go wrong if somebody else assumes something different that makes sense brilliant all right with that we'll wrap up tavi rivas thank you very much for being on the innovation civilized podcast what a great discussion i'm sure the audience is going to have a blast listen to it hope to have you soon and all the best with avitech thanks a lot brilliant Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.